Welcome to Masters and Mavericks. Um, today I'm with Dennis uh, Mortensen, who is the founder and CEO of X.AI. Usually we talk about marketing, but today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Um, Dennis is uh, behind the technology of Amy, which is a personal assistant, not a human one. Um, but that uses uh, artificial intelligence. And I'm going to ask Dennis in a moment why he created Amy. But just so you know a little bit about his background or what people say about him, um, for instance, so far I know only three things to have come out of Denmark. Dennis Mortensen, Bjorg Lomborg, and the infamous cartoonist. It must have the highest concentration of irreverence in the world. So I'd first like to know from Dennis, um, if he thinks people in Denmark are generally irreverent. I think the economists once a year do this little study where they try to figure out who's the happiest set of people. And I think we end up at the number one spot and number two spot every year for the last short of a decade. So we're certainly a bunch of happy people. But I also think with some of that happiness comes the comfort to not just agree to everything, but I'm not sure we're necessarily as dramatic as the quote. I do like the quote, though. Fantastic. Well, Dennis, I don't know how irreverent you are, but certainly disruptive. Um, can you tell us why you created uh, Amy? I think you and I could do an immediate study for where we walk out the office, find the first 10 people, and we ask them, have you set up a meeting this week or last week? And all of them would probably say yes. And then again, if you ask him, didn't you find that really fun and exciting? And they would tell you, uh, no, I fucking hate it. And if you have this pain, which everybody does every day or every week or every month, and they just don't like it, it seems odd that we haven't tried to remove it. And certainly what we've seen is that people actually did try to remove it, but Somehow they didn't succeed because there was this idea of perhaps we can create an app or a plugin or an extension that can help you schedule your meetings. It's just not what people want. And then we found that really what they want, if they could afford it, was to go hire some assistant at $50,000 a year to sit in the front office and manage their calendar. It's just too expensive. But what if you could go create this intelligent agent that can do that exact job, and the interface, which would be natural language, would be one where I could tell that agent to go do that job, and I didn't have to change on my end. And that was really the catalyst when we brought the team back together late 2013. How did you come up with the name Amy? So here's perhaps an Easter egg that you haven't spotted uh, yourself. I'm actually sure you've spotted it, but most people spot it immediately. So her name is Amy Ingram, and that gives her the initials of AI. And if you do anything around text analysis and what have you, you work with a concept called engrams. And if you look at her last name, that is part of her last name. So really, we're just a bunch of geeks. But the agent operates under the name of either Amy Ingram or Andrew Ingram. And if you want the really last part of the story, I used to have a human assistant in my prior venture post-acquisition that was called Amy. So I think that's the starting point. And someday I shall call her up and tell her that. 
She's got 100,000 new friends. Thank you for sharing that, Dennis. Um, to set up this podcast, uh, I corresponded with Amy, and it was a very interesting correspondence. Um, at one point, I think, I may be wrong, I think she confused the past in time with the future in time, and subsequently, Amy was uh, removed from this correspondence, and Andy seemed to take over. Are they actually the same person, or do they have different algorithms behind them? So they are the exact same person under two different names. And I think just raw usability-wise, you would want to have two names. Should I have a sister, a wife, or colleague called Amy? It would seem odd to add the confusion of CCing in another Amy. So just for the purpose of having at least two names. And you can use both of them if you have access to X.AI. Most people, though, tend to pick one and stick to it. So I know Stephanie, which you set up the meeting with, she uses Andrew. Me, I use Amy. And uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's actually quite clever that the one you work with the most will be the one that will communicate back to you on your weekly summaries and what have you. Understood. Um, when this goes global, will you be using different names in Korea, Japan, China, Russia? I find it very unlikely that we'll be able to just carry over English-specific names like Andrew and Amy to other destinations like China, Korea, Japan. So we should most certainly align to that culture, whether that be just on naming, but also think in some of the ways she works, where I'll give you just one example here, which is certainly very very American and not very European where I'm from. So back home, if you and I set up a meeting for August 10th and we put it on the calendar, I wouldn't contact you until August 10th for where I would turn up at your office, certainly in Northern Europe. And that is because that's how it's been built up in culture, even before technology. In the US, if you and I set up a meeting for August 10th, you, if ultra-American, will send me a reminder three weeks prior, just confirming we're meeting up at August 10th. Then the day before, you'll say, I will see you tomorrow. So you'll kind of triple confirm the meeting, which is kind of a very specific thing to where I'm located right now. So I think there's many things that we need to make sure that we align to when we land in a new destination. You referred a moment ago to Amy and Andy as um, people. Yes. <laughs> are you a new Dr. Frankenstein? Who are you actually? <laughs> Here's the funny thing, or interesting thing really, because there's about to be a change in how software is being delivered. I simply don't see apps being the future. I think there'll be plenty of desktop applications and web services and apps in the future for where that is the best methodology to solve a problem. But I actually think that the future is one of intelligent agents. And once they arrive, as you suggest, how do we speak to them? How do we speak of them? And if you go to, for example, x.ai slash love notes, what you'll see is thousands of endorsements. And that's obviously wonderful. But what I think you should really, if you take a step back, look at is that there's two changes. One, they almost always speak of the AI as her, she, 
so on and so forth. And I find that fascinating. Even people who know that this is a machine continue to say she. Even when they make fun of their friends and say, you know what, my friend Tommy, he didn't know she was a machine. And I'm thinking, but even you, when you speak of the machine, say she. And uh, that is fascinating. And the second item is that they speak of jobs, as in, she did a good job. I asked her to do this. She delivered that two days later, and I was amazed, or whatever that might be. So those have been kind of two very interesting kind of outcomes of creating this agent, that we are moving into this new, almost employer-employee setting, where that's how you speak to her. And we can even see that in the way they communicate back to her. Once the job is done, for where if you do a pivot table in Excel, you don't shout out loud, good job, Excel. As in, that would seem silly, like you're a crazy person around the office. However, what we see here is once Amy's done a job, a piece of software did exactly what it was supposed to do, people will email her back and say, thank you very much for setting this, this up on Friday, or appreciate you doing it this fast, or whatever it might be. Again, where does that come from? Even I, actually, when I hand over jobs to Amy, I'll say things like, hey, Amy, would you be so kind and set something up with Stephanie and Tommy come early next week? Why do I write that? And that is something for where over the next couple of years, it's going to be super interesting to kind of see how that plays out. I think that's a fascinating point. What you seem to be developing here is a learning not only um, of the technology itself, uh, but also of human beings. What, why is it, do you think, that I understand people tend to challenge Amy with silly tasks um, that would be perhaps insulting to a human personal assistant? Why do you think that is? Curiosity? Fear? It's a good question. We've set out to create this highly specialized vertical AI, which can do one thing, but that one thing really well. And that means if you want to talk about Chelsea Football Club, she doesn't have any knowledge about that or where they stand and what risk they were at this season. And she doesn't Yeah, I don't either, but so we're <laughs> equal oh, okay. in that respect. Any one of a thousand subjects, right? <laughs> of course. And she just wouldn't have any knowledge. And that's fine. That's certainly what we had in mind. We wanted her to be an expert on this one thing. But I think there is certainly some curiosity right now because we're at the very beginning of this new paradigm. So you'll see even half a decade ago when people started to fool around with Siri that they immediately kind of end up in a corner for where they want to have fun or do things that it wasn't really designed to do. And I think that might be human nature. But what we can also see certainly on Amy is that she's kind, polite, but all business. She want to make sure that you and I end up talking on Skype. That's what I asked her to do. Don't chit-chat with my colleagues or friends or customers or partners. Do what I told you to do, Amy. And she does that well. So people tend to kind of fall back in line very quickly. It sounds like we're living in science fiction times. What we saw maybe in the movies 50 years ago or 30 years ago is happening now and accelerating. And maybe there's a misconception to that with regards to artificial intelligence. People think... Um, um, it, uh, of it as almost a living thing, um, as you just mentioned, 
Um, but from what I understand, enormous amount of painstaking work has gone into creating uh, this personal assistant. Why is AI so hard to create? There's a ton of things. So certainly if you go back, the initial fantasy for anybody in AI was to go create this human-like entity for where you could ask it any question, you could ask it to do any job, you could have casual conversations with it, and it would really be uh, this moment in history for where there would be somebody outside of just us. That's a great fantasy. We are nowhere near, and even in my head, I can't imagine it happening in my lifetime. But I do think this time around, there's enough people that reach the point for where, how about we forget that fantasy and then focus on some highly specialized agents that will be very human-like and perhaps even superhuman on their specific task, whether that be playing Go or setting up meetings or driving a car. And that's, I think, is certainly interesting that we've, as an industry, accepted that forget the idea of the oracle and focus on the kind of specialized agent, because that is certainly in 2016, 2017, possible. And for me, I think that's the biggest change, that we've all accepted that the oracle isn't arriving anytime soon, and that have allowed us to kind of dedicate time and energy to create these uh, types of agents. But the difficulty comes really in that level of ambiguity that is delivered in every single sentence that comes back from a human. I wish humans were just a whole lot more accurate. It's almost like uh, if you want to create a self-driving car, right? That is, if we agree that no human can drive on the roads, actually somewhat doable and not necessarily hard because I can just ask the car across the road, are you going to turn right now? And if not, then I can move forward. But given that it's not a machine and it's a human, all the sensors you need to kind of pick up on, is he going to move forward? And all the predictions you need to make where you're not even 100% accurate, and then you're going to make a bet. That makes it hard. And we're kind of in the same space where we're asking a machine to have this human-like conversation with a human that says things that they might even believe are true, but are not true. I'll give you a good example here, a simple example. So last night, say 2 a.m., you guys were working on a project, you're running late, you send Stephanie an email and say, hey, Stephanie, our meeting tomorrow, can we push that half an hour, please? Click send, and that's that. Seems like something that would happen all the time, and it does. But it's not true, though. It's not tomorrow. It's today. It's just a very human thing to use the word tomorrow once you haven't slept yet. And there's tens of thousands of cases where you say something as a human, and in your heart you believe it's true, but it's not technically true. And then the machine has to do two very hard things. One, be confident enough to say whatever I picked up is accurate. Two, it's not what he means. So I'm going to do not what he asked me to do, but something else which I believe is actually what he intended to say. That is a tricky situation to be in. And that's kind of what we're trying to solve every single day here. So you're not trying to make humans um, better trained to use technology. You're trying to train technology to work better for humans. That's exactly what we're trying to do here. So we certainly saw that there seemed to be this existing product market fit 
this idea, as I alluded to before, where people really just want that human personal assistant. They just can't afford it. So we shouldn't change that. It is our job to completely emulate, if not replicate, that human assistant that sits in the front office. That means it needs to be on your terms. So when you do say tomorrow, and you mean today, it's my job to figure that out, however hard that might be. I'm a little bit confused, Dennis, about what we call AI, which stands for artificial intelligence, um, which I assume means, as you were saying, can do tasks that require intelligence. And I don't understand exactly how it is artificial then and not real intelligence. So I'm wondering, maybe you can tell us what actually is artificial intelligence. Is it just self-learning in technology um, or is it something of a quantum leaf that is aware of itself um, or has lifelike behaviors? It's, it's a very good question. And I think it's one of those questions that we can continue to ask. So in one way, artificial intelligence is a subset of items that we do research on under computer science. And whenever we think we've come up with a reasonable, fair definition, we move it forward. So what used to be AI, perhaps in the 60s, is perhaps not AI anymore. And what we define as AI today, I am sure in 20 years, will not be defined as AI. And do you think that um, artificial intelligence has started starting to be used in marketing, um, do you think that's going to be a major trend? And what are the fields where you see um, the most immediate applications beyond personal assistant and scheduling? I might be slightly biased here, so remove that from the equation, but I certainly see a massive opportunity in productivity. A ton of knowledge workers will come into work today and touch the computer in some way, shape, or form, and their whole job is working that inbox, working Excel, writing documents, attend meetings, and do plenty of things for where some of them require humans to inject their ingenuity. Some items just require a dude to be by the keyboard and perhaps a machine to start to do that task for him. So I think there's a ton of things around productivity where you and I probably don't add much value. Whenever you and I are at the whiteboard, we add a ton of value. And it will be very hard to imagine a machine having true creativity. And I think that's where you and I want to be. So that's certainly where I see plenty of opportunity. I'm perhaps a little bit not skeptical, or perhaps I'm just getting older, or perhaps it's just because I have kids, on the things we can and probably will do on the marketing and advertising end of AI. So today, you and I can probably sell most people anything if we bring them into a room and spend an hour with them and really explain in great detail exactly what we have to offer, why that is better than what they have, and if that is truly an honest statement, then over time we'll persuade them. But that is very hard because we can't get an hour with everybody. All of a sudden, we might have these agents. They'll have these very intimate discussions with you on why you should go from one type of soap to the other. And uh, 
that's going to be an interesting setting, I think. Do you think that um, this puts a lot of people at risk in their jobs and, and what they should be thinking about or what I should what, what should my kids be thinking about in how to prepare um, their futures, their professional futures? If I think when I go to the supermarket now, um, there are often very few people uh, and machines where I can check out my my things. I have to admit, actually, Dennis, I often go to the human being. And when they say, no, you should go to the machine, I say, if I do that and everyone does that, that you won't have a job anymore. What's your thought on that with the Industrial Revolution? Farmers um, diminished greatly in number. Um, with the computer revolution, a lot of other repetitive tasks were eliminated, big disruption. Um, do, or, do you fear a disruption or do you see this purely in a positive way? So I am personally extremely optimistic about today, tomorrow, and the future in general. And my hope is certainly that we'll end up removing chores, really, that humans just doesn't really deserve to do in the sense that they deserve to do much more fulfilling tasks. And it's certainly true that there'll be plenty of jobs that might change dramatically, but I also hope that, and that's actually, that's actually very easy to imagine, and, and most people can take existing items and say, what will disappear? What's much, much harder for people is to say, what new jobs are going to arrive? It's not like you and I had a very clear idea of the fact that being an app developer was a real job back in the mid-80s. We couldn't imagine that. So that wasn't really in our spreadsheet, but that's certainly a job for some today, or being a AI trainer, which is a whole host of people that we have employed here, that was a job that didn't even exist four years ago. So it's much harder to imagine all the new jobs, and it's much easier to conclude those that might change or disappear. So I'm certainly optimistic, but I might also, and this is where my European background might just arrive, let's say that the whole thing ends up in a place which is not as optimistic as I suggest. Let's perhaps see us not have to work 50-hour work weeks. What if you and I only had to work 20 hours? Would that be so bad? I'm not sure that is a doomsday scenario. I'm sure there's a lot of people who kind of hate me just for saying that, but you know what? I don't think that's so bad. I don't think it's going to happen, though. There's no suggestion, though, or no data point that will suggest that we're going to end up working less anytime soon. Um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. Well, that might there might be some cultural divergence. Um, the uh, as it's said in Europe, people work to live, and in America, people live to work. Yep, and and somehow France still exists as a nation, even though they have a 35-hour work week and six-week mandatory holiday setting. So in that regard. If we ended up having something similar here, we would probably survive. I don't think it's going to happen, but if that is our worst-case scenario, then I think we need to kind of reimagine what worst-case means, because that is what we should be shooting for. I see that you're treading carefully being in the United States to advocate a 35 or a 20-hour work week, so <laughs> that's, that, that's noted. Um, the, the, what's the next big thing that excites you? I am... Obviously, just super excited to keep pushing our scheduling agent 
Amy, so that there comes a point where you look back and say, hey, for 20 years, we did email ping pong back and forth to set up meetings. Then sometime in 2016, 2017, these propeller heads came along and solved it and it disappeared. So that's my mission in life as we speak. What excites me from a technology point of view is this moment where these verticalized agents start to talk to each other. Say you are setting up a meeting in Miami. I know you don't live in Miami. I need to know exactly how you're going to get there. Instead of me asking you, how about I ask your travel agent? Because he's obviously the one that does your travels. I don't even know whether he's human or machine. I probably don't care, or Amy certainly don't care. She'll email him. He'll say that you arrive in Miami at 11. Very good. Then I can use that as a constraint for setting up the meeting in Miami. It's a six-hour meeting. I can now see that it's probably going to end at 10 p.m. Let me tell the travel agent again that you're going to be finished at 10. He now sees that then I can't get you back in time. Let me tell your booking agent that he probably needs to set up a hotel room. He then set up the hotel rooms, and all of a sudden there's been this little army of employees that you have on staff that talk to each other even without you asking them to do so. They just want to make sure that everything is well coordinated. And that have a cascading set of positive effects that I'm super excited about. And what's even more exciting is that I think all these agents will speak English to each other. Not an API or a software API that you and I grew up with, just plain English. As in, I will ask that travel agent, so when is he traveling out and when can I expect him to arrive in downtown Miami? I actually don't care about any API. What I care about is that there's some entity in the other end, AI or not, that needs to know this and needs to tell me exactly when you arrive. It is then my responsibility to understand the response. So that I find uh, very exciting and interesting, and I think it's going to arrive before we know it, actually. Doesn't that bring us back to language, um, perhaps culture, and what you were mentioning before, intent? For instance, you're you're, you're saying we want natural language here, could be English or another language, but as you were pointing out earlier before, we can be very ambiguous. We can also use irony. Yep. Um, we can um, have intent, which is not explicit in what we say. So how are you approaching that? There's a period between now and the future where we will make many mistakes, all of us, both as users and engineers of these intelligent agents. I do think, though, it's a worthwhile endeavor. And we need to figure out exactly how we extract that intent, how we exist in an environment where irony is just a part of it. And there's all sorts of other emotions that we need to take into consideration here. But again, it's a worthwhile endeavor. I'll tell you just about a little nugget of emotion that we've injected into into the system in one place and what that means. Say this particular meeting where you and I meet up at 9 o'clock on a Thursday morning and as we meet up at 9 o'clock somehow I decide that I can't make it. I postpone the meeting and then 
I somehow can't make the next time, I postpone it again. And at some point, Elliot will start to kind of uh, feel like Dennis is a little bit of an asshole here. And even though that I might be, because I pushed the meeting three times, Amy still works for me. So she needs to reschedule this, but we've engineered her in such a way that she feels some of that pain, and we inject some level of apology into the system, and we can see that it works. So simply just by you know, the ability to keep the meeting intact and having it scheduled, her being a little bit sorry on my behalf works. And that is something which you'll see not just us, but plenty of people inject into the system. Whether that be the ability to feel sorry or any other emotion. So that is uh, happening as we speak. That's a really startling thought to me um, that you would be referring to a technology as being able to start to feel um, and I guess some people might say, well, is that an artificial feeling or a real one? I would sidestep that and ask, um, would you think that maybe Amy could flirt or desire sex? Those are probably questions I shouldn't answer. But the reason that I'm asking that, it's a serious question, partly, is that... Um, life exists because of reproduction and that's probably the evolutionary explanation of sex and desire um, and if you have a self-learning or self-replicating machine wouldn't that be an element so here's the fact here's a set of facts so sometimes for fun and sometimes just because men are men Amy is getting asked out on dates so that's happening as we speak. And it's not because we designed her to be flirty. It's perhaps just a sign of something else, but it's happening as we speak. Whether she should be a little bit less formal and allow, allow her to kind of take advances of her gender or Andrew take advances of his gender, that's a good question. And I think that brings me back to this kind of interesting point for where there's actually a design process here for where if you and I go design a piece of software, we have a very clear understanding of what does the UI guy do or the UX guy or the information architect. And there's a whole set of processes that we refined over the last few decades. If you design an agent, that's a whole new process. And we have internally this AI interaction designer, Anna, and Diane is arriving soon, and those two own Amy. They're the ones that have designed her, together with the data science team. And that design, whether flirty or not, whether formal or not, whether something else or not, that is interesting. And I think that is put upon the individual agent uh, designer. And I think some will, as you suggest, be probably more aggressive on the flirty end of the spectrum. I'm not sure. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, the, the, to completely switch, you've been getting quite a bit of uh, media attention. And um, do you like being in the spotlight or is it pure business for you or to evangelize or share your thoughts? I think that it's obvious 
that intelligent agents or the conversational UI or bots or things happening on Messenger is new. It is not something where I tell you, oh, there's a new map app in the App Store. You should check it out. As I said that, there's a whole set of things that you already know. You know the App Store. You know an app. You know how to get it. You know how to install it. You know where it ends up on your phone. You know how to start it by clicking the icon. So there's a whole level of education that just comes with that. If I tell you that here's an intelligent agent, she can help set up your meetings, you might not necessarily have the whole thing kind of mapped out. Oh, what does that mean? How do I communicate with her? Is there a syntax? So we certainly perhaps overinvest, you might think, but for us it just seems like a good investment in at least talking about this as much as we can, because the more people who have an opinion, the better we can together figure out what should these look like and how should they act. It's obviously very nice for me to kind of see that we were a little bit alone in 2013, but over the last even just half year, right, with Facebook Messenger coming out with their idea of bots, Microsoft coming out with their idea of bots, that certainly helps us. Because all of a sudden it's not Dennis and Stephanie and 65 propeller heads here in New York. It's hundreds of millions of dollars from well-recognized brands that are going to market with similar ideas of the future. Um, one very philosophical question, perhaps. Do you think that these agents have or will have self-awareness or consciousness? I know it's even disputed that humans might have that. It's a good question. It's a question for where you can come to my house, we can talk about it all weekend, and we'll probably not be any further ahead. You'll come back next weekend and we'll continue. And I'm not sure I have an answer. I'm actually not sure anybody will have an answer. I do think, though, that this is where the artificial part becomes true, that there will be some understanding of what is going on here inside this agent. I'm not sure it's going to rhyme with or be a replica of how you and I perceive the world, but there will be some understanding of the world. It will be very different, perhaps so different that when you and I look at, say, the inner workings of some neural nets, that doesn't look like they are aware, but perhaps they are in their own right. But even when I look at you, I just assume that you're somewhat aware. But that's just an assumption I make. I'm not even sure you are. You seem like you're tuned in, you know, just as we speak, right? But but I actually don't know. So it's, it's a very interesting question. And... Uh, we all keep mulling it over. And perhaps in a decade or two, we'll be a little bit closer. Well, in fact, um, I'm an alien that was created by a superior civilization. I'm not a life form. Um, <laughs> do, do you have a mantra that you live or work by? And if so, what is it, Dennis? I like uh, this mantra of never surrender. And it fits very well with uh, certainly entrepreneurship. I think it fits very well with life. And I think any mission you're on, you just shouldn't surrender. And that certainly 
provides a good guideline for how I live my life and how we run our companies. And which is also why you'll see us make comments, even in public, for where we've set out to create this intelligent agent that can schedule meetings. And we will do just that or die trying. Whenever I say that, you know, SoftBank will, if not call me, suddenly at next board meeting say, Dennis, don't be so black and white. We'll probably pivot. No, we won't. We will do this or nothing. And we are just so focused on this. So that certainly uh, serves me well as a backdrop. Well, that leads uh, me to my last question. How do you see yourself when you're 80 years old? And I'm already guessing that I can sense what the answer might be. At 80, I just really want to sit in a chair with a Diet Coke and a fucking awesome laptop, look into the uh, horizon and say, you know what? That was fun. Didn't we have fun? Yes, we did. And then, you know what? I think I did well. And you can come visit me. So you you do you are Danish, perhaps, in background and European. It's not all about work. I just want to be happy. And I'm not unhappy working. We work hard. But I think perhaps some people have a disconnect when they try to create some sort of segmentation on life and work. If you have to do that segmentation, then I think you've lost already. If you think work is so bad that I need to do the least amount of it, perhaps you need to find a new job, dude. And if I live a life where I do stuff I like to do, then it's really just living my life. So me working my email at 11 p.m. in my underwear in bed, that's not a penalty. That's because I just want to check out what's going on. And... Uh, I think that's my focus. So if you end up in a place where you start counting the hours or doing that segmentation, it's time to change. Well, I hope this has given our listeners a little bit of better idea of the reality of artificial intelligence, what it might mean, what it might mean to people, and as well as a perspective of um, what I take away, never surrender. Um, but also be happy. So this has been fascinating for me, Dennis, and I hope we get to see each other soon. I am most sure we will. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 